Welcome back to another edition of a Mormon Expression. I'm your host, John Larson. And tonight we have another wonderful panel assembled. Um, how come we didn't get you a microphone? Uh, another fabulous studio audience is here, uh, again, observing the going on in Studio 1A, Studio Fist in Your Face. And to my right is the ever-present Zilpha. Hi, Zilpha. She's like, John, <laughs> you're to my right. Oh, to my left. Sorry, to the le- left, to the left, to the left. But hello, everybody. Hello. Hello, Zilpha. There's been a shift in the Godhead. Yeah, we used to sit reverse, didn't we, yeah. uh, Amy? Um, and now we have we have reversed. Um, the matriarchal order is fully in effect here. <laughs> Amen. I read Lord. that people who live in matriarchies get more sex, so we immediately switched over to a matriarchy in the Larson household. Does it seem to be working? Well, I'm still holding out hope. <laughs> You're still holding out. <laughs> um, and then also with us in the studio is the lovely Amy. Hi, Amy. How are you? I'm well. How are you? Welcome back. Thank you. It's been a while since I've been in the studio. Really? It has. It's been quite a while. Well, all of our listeners should know they're welcome in the studio if they want to come and observe the recording of one of these episodes. They just need to contact Zilpha or myself. And we'll let you know when the schedule is. The studio has about, what, five or six um, studio audience chairs? At least. And there's floor space. Bring a pillow. <laughs> yes, there is. It's that matriarchy. Bring a pillow, everyone. <laughs> All right. And um, returning again, uh, Ms. Jesse. Hey, Jesse, welcome back. Thank you for having me. It's good to be here. It's a pleasure to have you here. Um, as always, you bring a, a great voice to our mix. And joining us for the first time is Bill. Hey, Bill. Hi, uh, I'm Bill. I'm one of the contributors to Mormon Think, and I've been a longtime listener and big fan of Mormon Expression. Well, welcome, and uh, I'll double plug your site, Mormon Think. You're more than one of the contributors. I think you're the driving force behind that thing, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I've been <laughs> I've been at it from the beginning, so it's been uh, kind of a fun ride. I've talked to a lot of people who've left the church. Over the years, and of course, oftentimes when people have questions, they uh, go to Google. And I've heard time and time again people cite your site as being instrumental, being fair, being um, presenting, you know, factual information and not as polemic, and helping them understand facts about the church. And um, and so I hear probably your site name more than any. So um, congratulations. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, you guys have done a lot of work there. I'd recommend the site to anybody. I'll give an amen to that. All right. Well, we brought Bill on because he's an expert. Um, this this is the first, and, and I was nervous about this. I, well, I was. I still am a little nervous about this podcast, and I was being a baby about it, and Zilpha told me to grow a pair. So here I am anyway. Um, this is another in our fine series of Dummies podcasts where we try to um, look deeper into an aspect of church um, history or doctrine. And well, so, so you, I mean, to be fair, your concerns were that as a dummies podcast, we haven't really done something as historically rooted. I mean, like usually we'll take a a set of scriptures or a, or, um, you know, or, or a doctrine or, yeah. We usually focus on something narrow, like a single document or something. Right. So, so he was nervous about the presentation of, of how we're going to Discuss this. But I, I've, I've spoken to Bill, and he has reassured my my fears, and let's move forward. I Hopefully we can get this in, in our standard a lot of time. So tonight we're going to talk about the Kinderhook plates. 
um, the Kinderhook plates are this this episode from church history that is used on both sides. It's it's sort of this polemic thing, and we're going to sort of walk through and figure out what exactly happened. Um, what are the details? What do we know? What do we not know? And um, what are people leveraging? Because the apologists have written quite a bit about this to dismiss it as a non-event, and a lot of critics, I think, sometimes unfairly jump on this as sort of you know the smoking gun proof that Joseph Smith um, was was fraudulent or otherwise lying. Am I am I am I um, going too big, Bill? Is that is that a good representation? I think that's totally uh, on the mark. Okay, so um, let's let's start. We're back here in Nauvoo. I've said before everything everything fun happened in Nauvoo. Um, when what year was it? Eighteen forty three. Eighteen forty three. So so Bill, why don't you start us out on what happened um, in eighteen forty three when Joseph was introduced to the Kinderhook plates? Well, prior to that, it actually starts in April where a man by the name of Robert Wiley, he was a resident of Kinderhook, Illinois, dreamed three nights in a row that there was a treasure in a local Indian burial mound. And this kind of intrigued him that he'd have this exact same dream three nights in a row. So he decided to satisfy himself, and he began to dig up that mound. And he didn't want anybody to laugh at him, so he just dug it up by himself. And he quickly realized how much work it was. So a week later, he got about a dozen people to help him. And then on April 23rd, uh, there was several people there. Uh, the big ones were Wil- Wilbur Fugit, Robert Wiley, and there were two Mormon elders there, Elder Marsh and Elder Sharp. And they started digging. They found a lot of ashes and human bones. And after digging about 12 feet, they found six metal bell-shaped plates, and they were held together by two iron wires that were rusted through. And the plates were so completely covered with rust that they couldn't read what was on the plates. Then Dr. W.P. Harris, um, remember that name because he comes up later, he took the plates and washed them with diluted acid, and then it was clear that on the plates there was this hieroglyphic writing. And the plates were small. They were only about four inches in length and uh, almost three inches wide. Um, in fact, a friend of mine actually sells them on eBay uh, every about six months or so. So if you ever want to pick up a copy, just look there. You, know, you can find anything on the Internet these days. Yeah, for money. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> and right after that, the Times and Seasons ran an article uh, called Ancient Records, which reported the discovery of the plates. And they speculated that the discovery might help prove the Book of Mormon true. The editorial was hopeful that Joseph could provide the readers with a translation in the future. And so the plates were taken to Joseph. And on May 1st, William Clayton, who was Joseph's chief scribe and trusted confidant, um, he was with Joseph on that very day. In fact, earlier in that day, Brother Clayton actually married Joseph to Lucy, Lucy Walker. And he was at the Smith house on May 1st when he wrote the following. Um, this is in Clayton's journal. I have seen six brass plates which were found in Adams County. President Joseph has translated a portion and says they contain the history of the person with whom they were found. And he was a descendant of Ham 
through the loins of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and that he received his kingdom from the ruler of heaven and earth. And he also traced one of the plates in his journal, as did Brigham Young a few days later. Now, this basically became the source for the book History of the Church, which lists the the author as Joseph Smith, even though other people actually uh, wrote a lot of it. And on you that mean, document, the, the history of the church, even though it's in the voice of Joseph Smith, was not mostly was mostly not written by Joseph Smith. It yeah, was, it seems to be mostly compiled by others, um, his scribes, and the writings and the diaries and, and various other church historical documents they had. Right, primarily so, B. H. Roberts um, for a modern one. Um, B. H. Roberts is the one who put them in Joseph Joseph's voice. So, and I have in my hand, I have a 1978 edition, and in front of me is a 1946 edition, and they all still appear in the history of the church, at least up to 1978, on pages 374 through 376 of Volume Five of History of the Church. It has the uh, pictures of the Kinderhook plates. Now, there's a lot Back of stuff there. Those. I want I want to go back a little bit and dig into so so um, that whole region um, the, uh, even in Upper State New York and and the Ohio Valley was populated by the Mississippian culture the mound builders and and these guys were called the mound builders because they built great big mounds um, uh, um, and one of the things they did is they built burial mounds and they would bury their dead on top of previous um, burial mounds. So this burial mound, these burial mounds were stacked. Um, and if you dug down into them, you could sort of dig through history and hit grave after grave after grave after grave. Um, so it wasn't uncommon for early American settlers to go dig into these hills and find, you know, remains of, you know, breastplates or other weaponry, um, you know, made out of iron. The, the, the culture was, was, was adapted in ironwork. And um, they would find all kinds of artifacts. So, so if you read early American history, you know they're always digging stuff up. Um, you know, some suppose, for example, that the reason Joseph Smith um, wrote that there were these great big battles um, at the end of the Book of Mormon is he's trying to explain these mounds of apparently dead warriors. Um, and you know, in the Book of Mormon, it says they stacked the bodies up into great big hills. Um, but so, so it wasn't unbelievable or uncommon to find artifacts as they would dig down through these hills. And this is apparently what the um, finders were representing this was. Now, let's be clear. This was called the Kinderhook Plates because Kinderhook um, is an area, a city in, in Illinois, uh, which is near where the, the mound was. So Correct, yes. Yes. Um, and let's talk a little bit about William Clayton. Um, because I think this becomes one of the first major points of contention. So Will, William Clayton was the first source of the uh, story in his journal, which is the one that you that you read, Bill, um, that talked about it it being a record of the uh, somebody from the loins of loins of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, received his kingdom from the ruler of heaven and earth. Right. And to me, it sounds like, I mean, who else would say this other than Joseph? I mean, why would a scribe know the ancestry of some ancient Indian? Right. So William Clayton was a, an official scribe for Joseph Smith, spent a lot of time with Joseph Smith. So William Clayton was, yes, he was, 
named as Joseph Smith's private secretary. And, you know, like, like you said, Bill, he actually married Joseph Smith to at least two women. He was the officiator in that. And he adopted polygamy himself in 43. And by the time he passed away, he'd acquired 10 wives. Um, he, he was one of the main guys who led the, 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 um, uh, pioneer trek out to Utah. And he was a very close confidant. As a matter of fact, he's the one who we have sourced for DNC 132. He's the actual scribe for that. So, so he oftentimes wrote in the voice of Joseph Smith. So a lot of jo- Joseph, cause Joseph Smith early on stopped writing things and he would dictate most everything to his scribes. Or to, I was going to say Pharisees, but scribes and Pharisees, <laughs> to describe their personal secretaries, and they would, they would, they would write the things down, and then to be published under Joseph's hand. So, William Clayton was a very close confidant, and, and the reason we bring this up is because some, one of the first attacks that apologists have on the story is they say this was all William Clayton's imagination. Yeah, and there's some other problems with that as well because we have other letters and other people who confirm the um, experience that William Clayton relates right. of Joseph so, Smith claiming this. But William Clayton, he was also, I mean, he was a stenographer. He wasn't just a, um, someone who could, you know, copy down what Joseph was saying. He was trained in how to do this. He knew how to write in shorthand. He would take minutes uh, for their meetings. Like you said, he, he, he wrote down many of the sections of the Doctrine and Covenants, and much of the uh, history of the church was taken from his diaries and compiled by the church. So the point at which someone can discredit William Clayton in this one aspect, um, it, it requires discrediting other things that he did and said, which is, I mean, it's peppered all throughout early Mormonism. Yeah, I want to I want to go through his positions as scribe. In 42, he became the assistant temple recorder and scribe. In 42, he's also named as the private clerk to Joseph Smith. In 42, he became the city treasurer of Nauvoo. He became the recorder and clerk of the Nauvoo City Council, and he became the secretary pro tem of the Nauvoo Municipal Lodge. In 1844, he became clerk of the kingdom of the Council of Fifty. Um, in 1844, he also became the trustee and trust of the church when Joseph Smith died, until until the Twelve took over. And in 1852, he became the secretary of the General Assembly of the State of Deseret. So you see, even after the death of Joseph Smith, he retained positions of high authority that all had to do with his scribemanship and his ability to, to you know, accurately represent the organizations. Yeah, I've read right. nothing except good things about William Clayton. He was known as a stickler for details. He wouldn't even carry a watch that didn't hold the exact correct time. Um, he wasn't in the habit of making things up and attributing them to the prophet. Right. Now, to be clear, he and Br- and Brigham Young had a fallout later in life. And uh, to be honest, I don't re- remember what that was. And he was kind of sent to exile. He was sent to, like, northern Weber County or Logan or something. And, That's exile. And, well, he, he, he was an insider, you know, in the Council of Fifty and, and all of that. Um, and then later in his life, um, after he was in the assembly, um, they had some kind of rift, and I don't know what the nature of it was. But during this this time, he was fully in the confidence of 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 the prophet. I mean, in the Council of Fifty and in polygamy, he was in the inside of the inside. So the the person who wrote the editorial in the Times and Seasons called Ancient Records was that John Taylor, or was that John Taylor was the publisher of Times and Seasons? But a lot of the articles were written without. 
attribution. Do you do you guys know? I thought I read that it was John Taylor that wrote this editorial. I have the photostatic copy up here in front of me, and at the top of it, it actually says to the editor of the Times and Season. Um, so, and, and again, it doesn't have an oh, attribution. So it's, it's I mean, there's W. W. P. Harris, M.D. Um, but then the rest of it, I, I don't think it has an author written on here, but it does say Taylor and Woodruff printers down in the lower right-hand corner. Okay. Yeah, W.P. Harris, he was the one who cleaned up the plates, and so I think he probably provided a lot of the story to the Times and Season as being one of the witnesses there and one of the people that signed the affidavit says his, uh, this is what happened on that day. So where we left off before I, I took you back to the mounds, um, was that, that, you know, Clayton had written in the, in the, in the journal, it was in the journal of Joseph, right? Where, where he wrote this down. No, it was in his own journal, it, which was yeah, later it, attributed. It, it was in Clayton's own journal. Yeah, it was in Clayton's own journal, which they later turned the language around to say, um, I instead of President right. Smith. And, and, and to, to reiterate the point, his, William Clayton's journals were a relevant source for other elements of the history of the church. Right. So, Absolutely. And and on March 7th, or sorry, May 7th, 1843, so less than a week later, uh, Parley P. Pratt, who was an apostle at the time, wrote, quote, six plates having the appearance of brass have lately been dug out of a mound by a gentleman in Pike County, Illinois. They are small and filled with engravings in Egyptian language and contain the genealogy of one of the ancient Jaredites back to Ham, the son of Noah. So it, it would seem that at least Parley Pratt had the same understanding that would corroborate uh, what was in the Clayton diary. And and th- this sounds most to me, you know, this reminds me of Zelf the White Lamanite. Does anybody want to relate that? That are you guys all prepared to? Uh, so when they when they were on Zion's camp in 1834. Um, you know, they were heading from Kirtland down to Missouri to Jackson County to reclaim by force, um, Jackson County from the Mobocrats. And, um, at, at one point they're walking along and they come up on top of this hill and they find, um, some exposed bones that had, um, a, a, um, what, a, what apparently was a arrow wound in the side. So, so the, the arrowhead was still there. I think it was a little bit below the surface. And Joseph tells the, the the company that this is the um, this is the bones of Zelf the White Lamanite who served under the prophet Onadangus. Any, anybody remember? I'm pulling yeah. this. I'm pulling this from memory. So, um, and he was known from the Mississippi to the Rocky Mountains. Um, <laughs> so 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 it wasn't uncommon for Joseph Smith to kick over a rock and tell a big story about Adam using this as an altar. You know that. That that wasn't unheard of. You it know? almost makes you want to say, yeah. you just can't make this stuff up. No, no. I mean, people, if people haven't heard that before, they think I just made that up. That 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 those are anti-Mormon lies. Nope, nope. That's that's really there. I, I have no doubt if he lived longer, he would have found the Ark of the Covenant and Noah's Ark, <laughs> and uh, who knows what else. Well, and let's give some more context to it. So this is 1843. So this is this is after. Um, the Book of Abraham papyri, or the, the Joseph Smith papyri, had been discovered. That was back in 1835 when the church acquired that. Um, and Joseph Smith was had still been going through the process of translating it. And um, the Kinderhook plates seemed to play two roles. One was that it corroborated the idea of there being small metal plates uh, with the appearance of gold or brass. 
that were used, which would buttress the Book of Mormon. Um, cause even then people were skeptical that, Hey, did people really write on these metal plates? Um, the way that the Book of Mormon describes it. And it also gives credence to the idea that there was, um, Egyptian hieroglyphs and Egyptian type artifacts that could be found in the new world. Um, which would support both the Book of Mormon and it would support um, Joseph Smith being able to interpret it, uh, which would give more credence to his translation of the Book of Abraham. Right, so everybody was waiting on pins and needles for him to go ahead and translate these things. But this isn't the first thing he hadn't translated, because when he got the Book of Abraham, you know, he said there was the book of Abraham, there was also the scroll the of, of Joseph, Joseph, which we we never got. So he was always sort of keeping people, you know. Well, and he he was a busy guy, and he he was not only busy with, like, church affairs, but he was always being pulled With in. other affairs? <laughs> oh, yeah, he was really busy at this time, wasn't he? Yes. But, um... and I don't even think they had vitamin E back then that he could take. <laughs> you mean vitamin V. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh... And so, and he was also in trouble with the law a lot. Yeah. So he didn't have a lot of time for, you know, translating. Man, he was OG. OG. Running from the law. Original gangster. Oh. Now, if, if you remember back to the White Horse Prophecy episode, I gave that little run through of what happened in May 1843 and all the, all the women that he was marrying. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, I think it was like seven women that he married the same month. So yeah, he was extremely busy, um, with the things that were going on. He was also sealed to Emma. Um, at, towards the towards the end of the month, he he was sealed to a few few other women prior to her. But um, yeah, it, it was a it was a very busy time for him. So I can understand why he hadn't taken the time to sit down and and crank out a, a book of Kinderhook. So, right. and take in mind that it took seven years to do the Book of Abraham, which isn't a very long book. So, the fact and he had he a lot of help. Whole, yeah. So the fact they didn't do a whole lot with Kinderhook plates and the one year before he died isn't, um, you know, as significant as some people make it out to be. So I read that there, that, um, the way he got the idea of the, of the e- Egyptian, um, ancestry was that there was a symbol on the Kinderhook plates that resembled closely one of his, um, Egyptian alphabet. Oh, you're jump you're jumping ahead here, Zilpha. I'm jumping yeah. ahead. Yeah, that's you're getting to the apologetics. Um, you're getting to the Don Bradley stuff. Now, oh. can I say, you know, I I got my undergraduate degree in linguistics, so I have seen a lot of languages and studied language production. Th- these do not look like a natural language to me. I, I I just as an undergraduate, I would look at this and say these are not these. This is not a genuine language. Yeah, I'm not a linguist, but I can just tell by looking at it. One of the plates has basically four dollar signs on it and the cent symbol. Um, they, they don't look like uh, much of anything either, just squiggles. In fact, they said they originally got them from a Chinese tea box. And someone once wrote me on the site and said that that's true. He was a Chinese guy. And he said some of these symbols are common Chinese characters like, you know, for tree and just, you know, common words and showed me a site where they're at, and I, I, met, I matched a lot of them up. So I have no doubt that that was the source for some of them. I, I can see that they could be like Chinese characters written by somebody copying them who doesn't understand Chinese. But 
to my point, the language characters have to be visually distinctive, I mean, to be simple. And when you look at them, you have to be able to recognize a T is different than an I and an L is different than the number one. So the 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 more complicated or wiggly or tiny um, the, the things are, the less likely they are to be distinctive. And, and the way they've got the characters around here, and, and you have to be able to produce them with a stylus or with a you know, something to mash into clay or however the writing system is derived, you have to be able to make that distinction. And I, I would just say offhand, this does not look like a natural language. It's definitely not either Egyptian or Hebrew. Yeah. That's right. In any form that we know. I mean, I've never read reformed Egyptian, so. Well, it was actually sent to the, uh, Equi- was it the, the uh, antiquarian society and according to Robert Wiley, they said that the there were no such hieroglyphics known, and if there had ever been, they have long since passed away. So that was if they were indeed sent, that's what they said. Basically, we don't know what they are. That's a that's a and, nice nineteenth century way of saying what I just said. The, 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 <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, <clears throat> okay, so let's talk about so so we have the plates. They get cleaned up. The the they're written about in Nauvoo. What what happens to them? Well, we know that Joseph Smith never produces a book of Kinderhook. So where where do the plates go? Okay, the plates, um, basically, they were in Nauvoo for a, about five days and then taken away. They appear to have returned to Nauvoo in June when the Nauvoo Neighbor Press published a, uh, a broadside entitled Discovery of the Brass Plates. And the handbell contained a reprint of the Times and Seasons article, as well as the facsimiles with all 12 sides of the six brass plates. And uh, they also noted that regarding they there's nothing further regarding the prophet's opinion, but they were hopeful that the contents would be provided in the future after it was translated. And then the images appeared all over the place. They were in a lot of church publications and local newspapers, the Quincy Whig, the Warsaw Signal, reportedly used in missionary pamphlets. And then, well, Joseph was killed about a year later, and he really didn't do anything else further with the plates that we know of. And they were put in Professor McDowell's Museum in St. Louis. And it was ultimately lost when this museum disappeared sometime during the Civil War. And Can I jump in there, Bill? Sure. Oh, I just wanted to add that on that on that broadside that you mentioned, um, there's a there's basically an affidavit or a, a, it's signed by um, nine different people who are supposedly involved with the process of acquiring them. And one of those people is Robert Wiley, whose land it was on or near. And then one of them is uh, Fugate, who I think we're going to get to in just a minute, but um, I, I think if you were someone at the time who had heard about these and saw, okay, there's there's nine or ten people here swearing that they dug these plates up together, um, that would probably be fairly persuasive to them, um, considering that other people had found other artifacts in other mounds. I I, I just want to make the point that I don't think it was unreasonable for people at that time to not express too much skepticism about it. I, th- I think it would have been reasonable to believe that the Kinderhook plates were an actual artifact at the time, based on the information that a lay person would have had. Well, and they wanted yeah, to yeah. believe it too. Sure. 
Yeah, but even if you didn't, even fans. if you didn't believe in Joseph Smith's version of what they said, um, I think most of most people or many people would have still considered them to be ancient artifacts, even if you didn't think Joseph Smith knew what they were. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, especially because they're put in the museum, people can see them, you can touch them. They look real. I mean, they right. So it's around 1860 that they're lost, and they were believed to have been destroyed in the fire in the St. Louis Museum. Um, well, the museum just sort of disappeared. I think during Civil War, um, it was kind of taken over. And I think the museum was more of a traveling kind of thing with tents and stuff and wasn't so hardcore established. And uh, I think he, the guy who owned the museum, uh, Professor McDowell, was a Southern sympathizer. And when the Northern armies came in, they kind of trashed the place and um, it disappeared. Until okay, so they disappear from history, and you know Brigham's not big on translating things. This just sort of goes away, and, and then shows and, up in the 1922 or whatever that is, the first edition of History of the Church. Yeah, and yeah. So now, follow, yeah, following the timeline, there's one event, well, two events that happened before that, and in 1855, Dr. W. P. Harris. He's the guy that originally cleaned up the plates right after they were discovered. Well, he wrote a letter. It was written in 1855, but not published until 1912. But in this letter, he wrote that in 1943, he had accepted the discovery of the plates as genuine. I washed and cleaned the plates and subsequently made an honest affidavit to the same, he said. But since that time, Bridge Witten, who was a blacksmith in Kinderhook, said to me that he cut and prepared the plates and that he and Wiley engraved them themselves and that there was nitric acid put a, put them on, on the plates the night before so to completely rust the iron ring in the band and that they were carried to the mound, they rubbed in dirt, and they were carefully dropped in the pit so they could be found the next day. Mm. And... Since this wasn't published until 1912, I don't know how much this was circulated before then in any sort of media. Um, But the next big one really comes that really generates uh, some interest is in 1879, where William Fugit admitted in a signed affidavit that Robert Wiley, Bridge Witten, and he and made them plates uh, themselves as a hoax. Okay, so let's. So that's 1879. Yes. Yes. Okay, so let's go back. 1843. These guys get together and presumably want to expose Joseph Smith as a fraud, right? Right. That's that's their motivation. In, in the affidavit, David, did they speak to their motivation? Yes. Um, they said that. Uh, they had read that Parley P. Pratt's prophecy that truth is yet to be spring out of the earth. And they concluded that he wanted to prove the prophecy by the way of a joke. Okay. So, so here's the first um, apologetic objection that I, that I have. Had they wanted to do that, why wait till so many years after Joseph Smith is dead, some 35, 34 years after he's dead, before they come out and say, we were just kidding. 
They didn't know he was going to die so well, soon. The, but, but they knew he died. Yeah, but they were still hoping that somebody in the church would make an attempt at a translation. Is, is that is that your guess or is that? Well. No, that's a, it's an okay guess. I'm just wondering if, if that's what they said. or No, I've read an apologist response that said something to that effect. That well, that, I, I that, think, that was a possibility. Well, I think there's three reasons, um, or three possibilities, rather. One is something that the Ensign said, that um, that since this wasn't published until 1856, the hoaxers wouldn't have had the property, um, the opportunity to call out the prophet, assuming that they even know that the uh, Deseret News account, which appeared 13 years later and was published a thousand miles away, they probably weren't even aware of it. So Wait, that was a, an account that was copied um, from like the first account, but it was it was published in Salt Lake City in the Deseret News, right? I don't think yeah, they mentioned it's the that same one. one that appears later in the history of the church. So they so reprinted it. I don't know it. what was published in the town before then. Um, the best I could find was that 1856 Desert News. So partly Pete Pat, uh, I mean uh, William Clayton recorded it in his journal in May 1st, 1843, but I'm not sure how widely circulated that was, if at all. So they right. wouldn't necessarily know that Joseph said that about it. Right, and Joseph Smith dies the next year. He never publishes a formal translation of it, and, you know, this this probably would have been mostly forgotten. So I think for the people who did the hoax, they might have thought, oh, this didn't really work. We didn't really pull it off because they actually weren't aware of the things that Joseph Smith had said about it or those those things weren't made public. Um, the the translation and all that, I mean, the, the history of the church hadn't been published yet. And that's one of the problems that the church has to deal with is that they they could have probably pulled out earlier, but they kept ratifying um, the statement that Joseph Smith had made, had made that William Clayton recorded. Um, they, they stuck with it for so long up until 1981 and to me that's one of the most problematic aspects of the kinderhook plates the, the tr- well, I, church kept retelling the story as yeah, if the church, the joseph church knew all, what he was talking about right all along the narrative and we can just run through them real quick here before we go into them in detail but 1904 they published an improvement era article that was very you know strongly supportive of the kinderhook plates being an evidence for joseph smith's divine calling um, in 1966, they, they do some testing on it. It's basically says that it was consistent with 19th century methods, but was somewhat inconclusive. The, ch- the church still doesn't change its story. 1980, uh, they finally do this destructive testing. And it's not till, uh, excuse me. And then in 1979, Marky e. Peterson was still claiming that the Kinderhook plates were of ancient origin. And then it's finally in 1981, after the destructive testing proves they were a hoax, that the church gets around to saying, oh, yeah, now uh, they, they were a hoax. And by the way, Joseph Smith never did a translation of them. I mean, that's the that's the Reader's Digest version of, of where we're going. But they they didn't say that for over 100 years when they could have all along. So if there's a prophet, seer, and revelator who can look at ancient documents and determine what they mean, then... You know, it seems like he he likes to wait until after scientific testing proves what something is. Okay, we we jumped a little little ahead there. Let's go back right. to the recovery of the of the plates. 
Um, so you, you referred to, um, McDonald. Six, so the, the guy who, 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 uh, Wiley sold the plates to for his museum. Yes. And then McDonald joined the Southern uh, military during the Civil War. His museum was sacked. And then, um, a while later, something resurfaced, but not, not all, just one plate. Okay, do go on. You tease. <laughs> well, I don't know. If Join I'm, us I don't next know week. If I'm the for... best person to. Was it? Weren't they found in the Chicago Historical Society Museum? Well, that's that's where they ended up. Um, so let's see. According to the Enzyme, the 1981 Enzyme article that that sort of goes into to all of this stuff about the Kinderhook plates, um, the uh, let's see, the, the his, Chicago Historical Society got that plate in the 1920s as a gift from a guy named Gunther, who was a collector of historical artifacts. Gunther got it in 1889 from a guy named Richardson. And then Richardson got it from a, a different McDowell. Oh, it wasn't McDonald, it was McDowell. Who got it from a soldier in the Iowa Reserve Regiment that had ransacked the museum. That's the one plate, or that's all that of them? That is the one plate. No other plates have ever resurfaced. So we on, today we only have we one? We have one plate. So I'll ask the obvious question. How do we know that that plate is not a more modern forgery of the original ancient plates? The one, of the reasons, <laughs> one of the reasons is that the, the plate that we have... Um, had a had a distinctive dent in it that was actually mistaken for um, a part of the engraving on the plate itself. Right. So when they when they copied the the picture of the plates, the pictures that appear in the history of the church today, right. you can't tell from the picture the difference between that dent and the engravings. But if you look at the plate, you know, by itself, not like a black and white picture of it, you can see, if you look closely, that there's a dent, and it's not an engraving. So, it was, yeah, so if a hoaxer was trying to do it, they would have made uh, an engraving look like that whole symbol. They wouldn't have done half the symbol and half of it a dent. Right. Ah. The dent was made by the tool, like a vice that held the plate. Okay, right, so, so that's how we know it. It Well, that's one of the ways we know that it, it is the original plate. So the plate is now in the possession of the church, I take no. it from. No, no. Who, who, who's, got, um, who's got the potato today? Chicago um, Historical Chicago Society. Chicago Historical Society. Um, they still have it. In fact, one of the uh, members of Mormon Think actually wrote them because some people said the plate was destroyed when they did the destructive testing. But they wrote back and said, no, just a tiny bit of it was, and they still have it in their possession. However, it's not on display at the current time. Right. So let's talk about the testing that they did. Well, before we get to the testing, can we talk about the difference between etching and engraving? Because we've, we've said engraving a couple times on here. So, Oh, that's um, true. And, and Bill had briefly mentioned the supposed process by which they had, had etched it, according to Fugate. Um, so etching and engraving are two different processes. Engraving is basically scratching. Um, it's where you take a, a, a sharp tool 
and would carve out a piece of the metal by by grinding it or cutting it or uh, pushing, you know, with pressure. Um, etching, you actually take the medium that you want to etch into and you would dip it in some other material. Uh, they would usually use some kind of wax. And then you would carve just through the wax to expose small bits of the metal. And then you would take the, the entire piece and you, you could soak it in acid or you'd, you'd put acid on those, on those areas. And what it would do is it eats away at the metal that's exposed, but it doesn't eat away at the metal that is still covered by the wax. The wax protects the rest of the metal. So when the scientists look at these engravings or these, these etchings, they look at the, um, the marks that are on the, on the little bell, they can look at it with a microscope and see does this look like it was scratched out or was it a chemical process that removed it? And that becomes very important because if it were an ancient um, artifact, there wouldn't have been any way for them to, they, they, they just wouldn't have had the technology to do etching. Now, wait a minute, because right. these guys had chariots older. and horses <laughs> and this is a Jaredite thing, right? They had machinery, it says in the Book of Mormon. So aren't you... Begging the question, if you assume they didn't have etching um, technology, you well, know, I guess I am. But <laughs> but when when that's what Fugate said they did in 1879, and then it turns out that's what act, that's the way they were actually produced. That's a problem. Yeah, uh, the metallurgy think... of the plate itself is another problem. It was a it's a um, you know they can test the metal and determine whether it's a modern by, alloy by how the alloys and they can tell how hot the furnace has got yeah 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 right and they can tell how much slag is in it so in order to even though they might have been able to create some kind of brass you know thousands of years ago they wouldn't be able to do it with the same level of precision that they could do in the mid 19th century because they wouldn't have had the same types of tools and uh, advanced processes instruments and you know thermometers and that kind of thing that they would have had at that time so they can they can test the metal and see, um, you know, what's the quality of it and when would they have been able to make that based on what it was. But right. I don't also, think we've read yeah. the part from Fugate that he, um, where he talked about that. So he said, he said, um, Bridge Witten cut them out of some pieces of copper. Wiley and I made the hieroglyphics by making impressions on beeswax and filling them with the with acid and putting it on the plates. When they were finished, we put them together with rust made of nitric acid, old iron, and lead, and bound them with a piece of hoop iron, covering them completely with rust, with the rust. So that's the 1879 Fugate. Confession. Right, so they used two different kinds of acids to, to treat it. One to etch the metal, and another one to rust it uh, very quickly. So I, I want to be clear here. So mid 19th century um a country um blacksmith had the technology to create plates and etch them and age them in such a way to make them look ancient very interesting yeah, hmm. yeah and also um he, <laughs> what are you getting at john I no i just i just i can't I, just, I can't see through the subtlety there i just wanted to i wanted to be clear that that i just that, that was a possibility yeah. Well, when they tested it, they said it was a brass alloy uh, made of copper and zinc, and that was very typical of the mid-19th century, whereas the brass of ancient times was actually bronze, an alloy of copper and tin. So that's just another reason to show that these were made 
in the 1800s and not, you know, 2,000 years ago or three or more. And it wasn't made in the 1920s, probably. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. So we, we, we have them. Um, they, they show up. We, we look at them. The, the story continues. And then we test them, discover they're, they're a 19th century forgery. We have the testimony of those who are responsible for this forgery saying, yes, this was a, this was a forgery. And now the church shifts gears. Is that, that, I'm just recapping what I heard in the last 10 minutes. Yeah, just yeah. to reiterate, in 1904, there was an, there was an improvement error article that supported the, you know, traditional, or the, the church, the history of the church account, um, and also included the language of the, um, of the translation that Joseph Smith used. So at least in 1904, the church was still publicly, you know, in its, in its own publications saying, this is what the Kinderhook plates are, and Joseph Smith translated them, and this is what the translation was. That was the church saying that in, you know, from 1843, and then again in 1904, and then uh, up until, um, like I said, 1978, uh, Apostle Marky e. Peterson was still um, in his book called Those Gold Plates, um, was again reaffirming the same thing, that the Kinderhook plates were an ancient <clears throat> um, evidence of of what Joseph Smith had done. Now, I, I'm looking at something right now that actually says that in 1965, the Mormon, phys- Mormon physicist George M. Lawrence also did some testing on the plates and decided that they were frauds, a fraud way back then, but that no one in, you know, no, none of the Mormon who who's wanted to have anything to do with it. They were all standing by their assertion that it was, that they were authentic. Does anyone else? Wait, what did you call them? A who who? <laughs> that means something else to me. Oh, sorry. <laughs> what? The who. Yeah, I read that where he The who's are who's. Who's who? The who's who's. Or whatever. <laughs> the powers yeah, that he be. He suspected that they were um, hoax plates. But he couldn't prove it because there were still some people that said it was etched. Um, some engravers had looked at it, and it was really indeterminate. It could have been either way in the sixties. So now, did I hear before that th- this came out in '66 um, when the church looked at them again? Sixty-five. Yes. Now that happens to be uh, maybe not. I'm, I'm asking the question. That's the same year that the um, the the Abrahamic um, papyri were found, although there are those who assert the church knew where they were all along. Um, yeah. What was this? Any, anything in conjunction with that? Was was there an attempt to? I, I, you know, I immediately wonder if when the church finds that the Abrahamic um, papyri are not what they they go look for other ancient evidence, or, or is there any connection we can draw between the two? Well, um, in 1962, actually, um, that's when. W. Uh, Rides, Welby W. Rides, he was president of the BYU Archaeological Society. Well, he hailed the discovery as a vindication of Joseph Smith's work as he believed that Joseph had did translate the Kinderhook plates and, just as the, the church historically sought, uh, or, or as they taught. And this was, this was in 1962. So, they were still believing at that point, and 
it wasn't until 1980 that they were proved to be a, a hoax. Yeah, so let's be clear. Prior to the 1981 Ensign article that we've been referring to, if you had said publicly that the Kinderhook plates were bogus and that the supposed this this translation that Joseph Smith had offered was therefore false, you would have been uh, contrary to the church's official stated position that had been in place for you know 140 years. Yeah, and I might add to that that I'm one of the few people that actually that I know of that was taught the story of the Kinderhook plates in gospel doctrine class by a member of the bishopric as a faith-promoting event. And even though this is three decades ago, I remember this lesson because it was the, probably the most fascinating lesson I've, I was, I've ever been taught in church. And he went through the whole thing just like we did, and it just seemed so damaging to Joseph. I'm like, how on earth is he going to get out of this? And then at the end, he does a twist saying that basically somebody had measured the plates and they were a different size than the original. And so the plate they discovered was a forgery of one of the original Kinderhook plates that were real that Joseph Smith did translate. And this must have been before 1981 when they were proved to be a hoax and that the original plates. But that just brings up your point that this was the, this is what was taught, even though it wasn't taught very well. I mean, it wasn't um, taught to many other people, but it was certainly taught in my ward. Well, and I, I want to underline culpability there. there, The church exercises a huge amount of editorial control over all of its properties. The church owns BYU. And, and if you want to become faculty BYU, you have to get an interview with the general authority. The church owns Deseret Book, and we all see how often Cherry Dew is pictured with the, the brethren. So they've obviously got their hands all over that. And, and the church still publishes the history of the church, which still has this story in there. There is no footnote. There's nothing in any, like, of official church publication on this front that suggests that this is been proved to be a fraud. If you go dig through the archives, you might find this article, but the church doesn't doesn't make it easy, you know. So so ostensibly, on one hand, the church is still teaching the story as if it's correct. Wait, where are they teaching yeah. it that it's correct? In they, the history of the, the church. history of the church is still published. In the but is the is that still in the new versions of it? I mean, I know you're saying it was in your '78 version, but that would have been prior to the 1981 change. I, I, I'm not aware of it being pulled out of the history of the church. Okay, you know what? I've got I've got a I've got a newer version of it, but I don't have it here with me. But I'll I'll check on that in the print version and put it in the comments. It it, it could be, but I'm not aware of a revision of the text. I I believe that the history of the church has published. If you go to Desert Book and buy a copy today, it is still the same text. Um, I don't I don't believe they've revised it. Um, this is long since passed, but the papyrus they were discovered in 1966. Yeah, that's what I said. Okay. Um, so, 1981, church definitively comes out and says, yeah, yeah, this is probably a, a hoax. So now we have 30 wonderful years of apologists to deal with this, because this doesn't look good for the for the prophet Joseph. Well, I mean, we've established here that it looks as legitimate as anything else 
that, that's coming out there. I mean, it's on par. It has the same individuals involved in a lot of things we've accepted as doctrine and accepted as history and accepted as revelation. Um, there's, there's no apparent shenanigans on the part of the church. So it appears at this point that Joseph Smith buys this fraud. He, he talks about it as if it's ancient. It's accepted as ancient and the church keeps publishing that. No later prophet gets any sort of revelation or any sort of tickling from the spirit to tell them that it's not, it's not something that, um, tickling. No hoo hoos were tickled <laughs> in no. the making of this well, plate. Well, John, and, and the 1981 article basically says two things. The first thing it says is that the Kinderhook plates were a hoax, and it admits that. But the second point is, oh, yeah, and we're glad that Joseph Smith has now been vindicated since he never made a translation of the Kinderhook plates. Okay. That's basically how the, so that's how the, the 1981 article spins it. That's the first apparently he recognized that they were a fraud and therefore did not translate Yes, that's, that's apologetic yes. response 1A, that if... If these were actually true, then Joseph would have translated. But since he didn't, he somehow recognized that they were for fraudulent. Now, why he wouldn't say, get thee hence you. What, what is the story, Zilpha, where somebody comes up to Joseph and says, I had an angel last night tell me that, do you know this one? An angel appeared to me last night and appeared this revelation. And Joseph says, what color was the angel's hair? And she says, red. And then Joseph says, ah, there's no red-headed angels in heaven. Yeah, you mentioned a similar story in the Adam or the um, the white. No, what what's the last one that that came out? Help DNC. Me out. Uh, yes, yes, the handshaking of the devil. Yes. Yeah, there yeah. was a similar story, the, and there are actually several of them through church history where Joseph Smith points people out and says, "Ah, your your revelation, you are a false prophet, or you, you're from the devil." So, why yeah, does why Joseph let say, this one pass? You guys are obviously, you know, just trying to fool me, and I will not be fooled. What I, I know none of us are necessarily in the camp of Joseph on this one, but what, what's the apologetic response to that? that he the apologetic response to that would be, if he made a translation of it, or if he thought it was that important, um, if, if he thought it was actually that what he said it was, why didn't he ever publish a revelation of it during his lifetime? Why was it just a footnote in... Clayton's journal. Why, and why not then publish the book of Joseph? It, or can we draw the same conclusion? Well, how how long after this happened did he die? Uh, like Less a than year. a year. Well, hello. Yeah, it was one year. <laughs> and that was a rough year. I mean, there was all sorts of uh, <laughs> apostles leaving and uh, polygamy issues, and he was hauled off and by the Missourians on the charge of treason, and he was a busy guy. Well, and there's the, the quote, and I we may have read around it, the... Uh, Welby Rick's quote reprinted from the Improvement Era 1962 stating uh, this reaffirms his prophetic calling and reveals the false statements made by the finders. The, pr- the plates are now back in their original category of genuine. Uh, what <laughs> right. scholars may learn from this ancient record in future years or what may be translated by divine power is an exciting thought to contemplate dot 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 <laughs> this remains true joseph smith jr stands as a true prophet and a translator of ancient records wow that was great yeah work. so so there had already been a, a fair amount of apologetics prior to the destructive testing and all the apologetics were of the bent that fugate's story didn't make any sense he was the hoaxer was the real hoaxer um and that basically that he was lying 
Um, there's a story here. There, sorry, there's a book here called The Story of the Mormons, uh, written by author's name is Lynn. Um, and he basically calls on the carpet um, the the Fugate affidavit by saying, um, I've got it right here. He said he basically says that Fugate's story is is garbage and and goes through it. I mean, it's a pretty pretty long quote, but um, tries to completely undermine Fugate. That was the official, or or if not official, that was at least the apologetic position, which did a a complete one eighty. So they they their idea was that Fugate was trying to make Joseph look bad by saying, "Ha ha, this was a hoax," even though Joseph yeah. said it was uh, an ancient thing from an Egyptian dude. Exactly. And I've got the, I've got the quote here now. He says, quote, of this little presentation of the matter, it is only necessary to say that it is a little singular that Mr. Fugate alone out of the three said to be in collusion and perpetrating the fraud should disclose it. And that he should wait from 1843 to 1879, a period of 36 years before doing so when he and those said to be associated with him had such an excellent opportunity to expose the vain pretensions of the prophet. If Fugate's tale be true during his lifetime, for while the statement in the text of the prophet's journal to the effect that the find was genuine and that he had translated some of the characters and learned certain historical facts concerning those persons with whose, with whose remains the plates were found may not have been known at the time, the alleged conspirators to deceive him is still quite apparent that the editor of the Times and Seasons, John Taylor, the close personal friend of the prophet, took the find seriously and expressed implicit confidence in the editorial that the prophet could give a translation of the plates. So basically, this author is saying, hey, um, oh, and uh, sorry, there's an even better part here um, underneath it. He says, how easy to have covered Joseph Smith and his followers with ridicule by proclaiming the hoax as soon as they accepted the Kinderhook plates as genuine. Why was it not done? The fact that Fugate's story was not told until 36 years after the incident, and that he alone of all those were connected with the event gives his version of it. It rather, It is rather strong evidence that his story is the hoax, not the discovery of the plates, nor the engravings upon them. Yeah, and this is actually in History of the Church is one of the footnotes, where they attack Fugate's credibility, uh, and this, and it still is in there today, I believe. Wow. <laughs> right. Well, you know what? I, I can understand why Fugate didn't come forward with his, his, um, confession until that, those many years later. I, I can understand because Joseph never came up with a real translation. And like they said, they didn't know that Joseph said, Oh, yes, these are from the, the loins of ham or, or whatever. And they, we're just sort of hoping that somebody would, I think. And also, it's not like they wanted to be seen as, as liars and deceivers. I don't think that they lived in a bubble. They had friends and they had wives and families and whatever. They wouldn't want to admit that they had done this fraud, I don't think. And also, they, they were able to sell the plates originally. They were taken seriously. And why, if you're taken seriously, why would you say anything? I think I understand it completely. Yeah, I mean, if you yeah. sold the plates as a historical find, and then the next week you say, oh, that's all a hoax, well, the guy you sold them to is going to want his money back. Right, you would never say anything until it was, and then, you know, until they had disappeared. Then there's nothing to lose. 
Um, the other reason I think would be that since it was rumored at the time that these plates could actually turn into a, a sequel to the Book of Mormon, they were probably it would probably be worth it for them to bite their tongue now and wait for Joseph to come up with a whole other book um, or maybe even a later prophet. And then how much greater would that hoax have been if a whole book was based on these plates they made rather than just little, you know, paragraph or two that Joseph said about it. So yeah, that would probably be enough for them the, to wait it out. It, it could have had the potential to be, complete, you know, a lot more devastating to the church um, than it had been if if something else had been done. But I think Fugate's motivation for waiting is interesting, but ultimately irrelevant to the story because we know that it was a hoax. I mean, we've they, they did they did the testing on the plate, and we know that that's the plate that he had. So whatever Fugate's motivations were, you know, they were what they were. But that doesn't change the fact that what we have are the actual plates and that the actual plates were, um, or the actual plate that we have, um, was not an ancient record. Okay. So let's go back to the, um, apologetic objections. Now I, I hinted at some of these way, way early, the chief one still to this day. And then there's a twist in this story from last year, but the chief one has been to attack the credibility of, of, of William Clayton. Um, and, and part of it is to say, like I'm looking at the fair article right now and they point out all these things that Clayton has wrong in the, you know, that, that the, 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 the skeleton was said to be nine feet high. Now there are other sources of Joseph Smith saying that people were really tall back then. Um, so I, it, it seems like a grasping at straws or they say something like Clayton went off on his own and wrote this. Joseph was, we talked about Joseph being busy. He didn't really approve this. Yeah, but then he why did know, Parley P. Pratt also they, say it? The same article attacks Parley P. Pratt's credibility. And once again, I'm going to wave my, wag my finger at fair. Can you guys write one damn article without dropping the phrase so-called in it? It's, 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 it's such a cliche. Do not put that in any more of your articles, please. I beg of you. Um, so, so anyway, they're, they're, they're still attacking the, the Clayton because that, that seems to be their only recourse. Yeah. Yeah. They, br- they bring up tiny differences between the William Clayton statement and the Parley P. Pratt statement, such as one said it was uh, found six feet underground, another 15. Big deal. Um, one said it was a, J- a Jaredite versus a descendant of Ham, which could very well be the same, really. Right. And then, the skeleton. One said, you know, bones were found. The other said a skeleton. Well, where did the bones come from? Well, a skeleton originally. So, you know, the, uh, Clayton may have just connected the dots, you know, from bones to a skeleton. Right. And both he and Joseph probably both mis- misunderstood that. And I, I can remind our apologist friends that, that there are greater differences in the accounts of the first vision. You know, <laughs> so they're, I mean, they're straining at, yeah. they're straining at gnats because Clayton never claimed to have been, been there. Um, so to get, little details like that incorrect. You know, he's he's recording a second-hand account. But what he was first-hand account for was Joseph Smith's claiming that these were a, an ancient a, an ancient um, p- artifact. Well, wasn't it Clayton that... Or, oh, no. Okay, so the, the, the facsimiles that they have in the history of the church, which they have facsimiles of all of the plates front and back, do we know where those came from? Who did those? I, I couldn't find a place where it said who did those. Who actually made um, the yeah. yeah, that was that was the Nauvoo Neighbor Press made woodcuts woodcuts of those 
um, for the broadside. That was the where they came about. Okay, so it wasn't William Clayton, but Brigham Young drew a picture of it. Did William Clayton draw a picture in his journal too? Yeah, it's on the back of his journal entry on that day, which he reportedly did at the Smith's house. Yeah, so he he was there. Right. Yeah, he was, he was there. He saw it. Yeah, he would have. Yes. He would have had to hold it in his hand to trace it onto the, or, or was it Brigham Young who had traced it? One of them. One of them uh, traced they, they it onto did. the. Yeah, uh, Clayton traced it, and then a few days later, uh, Brigham Young traced it also. Okay, so it's not like they saw it or heard about it and then drew something they thought it was like. I mean, they they must have had it there against the paper and drawn around it. Yeah. Um, okay, so I'm going to read you this sentence to to sort of get to where we're going in terms of what they do today. Obviously, they'll keep saying Clayton, blah, 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 but that doesn't hold any water. This is the conclusion page. I'm looking at forgeries related to Mormonism on the fair uh, Mormon, the fairmormon.org site. The conclusion is that Clayton's account appears to be accurate, that Joseph did attempt to translate a portion of them by non-revelatory means, and that the translation provided matches a corresponding symbol and explanation in the G-A-E-L. That's the Egyptian language. Joseph did not attempt to translate the plates by revelation, and in fact demonstrated no interest in the plates after they left Nauvoo. Had Joseph attempted a further translation of plates using the Egyptian alphabet, he would likely have gotten no further than the first easily identified characters that he did translate. So these guys are now climbing inside Joseph Smith's head and proposing that there were two things going on. There was a revelatory translation and a non-revelatory translation. Of course, the non-revelatory um, translation is absolutely 100% undisputed, Grade A American Prime bullshit. <laughs> and the only question is, does the revelatory one? So so let's talk about Don Bradley's article. Who wants to run with that one? Well, isn't that sort of what I mentioned about and what you just mentioned about the character that resembles the symbol in the Egyptian alphabet? And, right. and that so what, Joseph recognized that and said, hey, hey, that's that symbol that I already translated. So this must be, you know, from the... Egyptian or the... I think it's preposterous yeah. to state that Joseph had no interest in in uh translating these so-called John so-called yes plates considering his experience with quote unquote translating the gold plates how could he how could they say he had no interest in it this would have been his jackpot well there's a lot of things that Joseph Smith papyrus. left unfinished and you can't go around levying saying he was not interested in in these things. Exactly. We've so already established that he was, he was a busy guy doing lots of things. Well, and and weren't they trying to translate the papyrus using that that Egyptian alphabet that they that they made yeah, up? Yeah, the Egyptian alphabet. I think we've had we've discussed it a little bit on this podcast way back in there. That that is a complicated mess. And uh, um, but Joseph Smith tried to work out what the papyri were 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 saying. Symbol and, by symbol. Symbol by symbol. And each symbol for Joseph Smith was equal to long sentences, paragraphs of, of information. And now we can read the, the demonic Egyptian that's written in today, and it's absolutely wrong. It, what Joseph Smith's translation has nothing to do with that. And of course the apologists say, well, he wasn't translating the characters. He was doing some revelation thing using them as a vehicle or but, some other but nonsense. But then in like that, that case, their, their apologetic 
um, reasoning for this doesn't make sense because it would have been the same revel- revelation that he used for that symbol that he used for the so, pirate. So symbol. who wants to recap Don's argument here? Because I don't, I'll jump in. I don't quite get it. So let, I'll, let, I'll jump in. I I think I've disentangled it. So just to to give a little bit more context, the G A E L that John just referenced is the grammar and alphabet of Egyptian language. And there's what's known as the Kirtland Egyptian papers, um, which is kind of this rough assembly of all these different documents. And it, it gets really kind of technical on which documents are what, and they all have names. And, um, but if I understand Bradley's theory correctly, and I, I have taken some time to try to do so, Bradley's theory is that Joseph Smith sees these kinder plates the one of the plates, um, and I'm looking at the facsimiles of all 12 sides of them. Um, Bradley's theory is that one of the plates had a symbol, which if you kind of smush it and turn it 90 degrees, looks like one of the symbols that eyes. Joseph Smith had, had previously translated, which was contained in the grammar of the grammar and alphabet of Egyptian language. So, According to Bradley, when Joseph Smith saw the Kinderhook plates, he immediately called, "Hey, someone, somebody, bring me my Egyptian dictionary." And it turns out that um, this character that is on the Kinderhook plate, which m- sort of not really matches a a symbol that is on the um, Book of Abraham papyri, the Joseph Smith papyri. The verse that Joseph Smith equated that Egyptian symbol to said something about Ham or Pharaoh in the Book of Abraham text. I'll read you again the passage. Okay, given that, this is from the history of the church. I have translated a portion of them and find that they contain the history of the person with whom they were found. He was a descendant of Ham through the loins of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he received his kingdom from the ruler of heaven and earth. He he's naming off several like like verbs and there, I mean there's that's 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 a complex structure, right? So so yeah. if if Bradley is right, and 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 the, a lot of apologists are investing in this right now, in 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 Bradley's theory, it seems to be laying bare that they're saying Joseph Smith just made shit up, <laughs> right? I mean that that's. that's the, the, even even with this, the secular translation, and he's pulling this stuff out, out of out of his hat because it doesn't say that in the KEP. So 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 Wait, what's, what's going the KEP? on? Oh, the Kirtland Egyptian Papers. Oh, okay, thank you. <laughs> which is the more general term, which I said it includes lots of documents, including the the G A E L, the grammar and alphabet of Egyptian language. Okay. All right. But yeah, I, I agree with what you're you're saying, John. I think the apologist point would be, look, he he wasn't inspired to try to translate this because it wasn't a religiously significant document, and he's just a guy who's trying to figure out what this says. So of course he's going to look back to this other thing that he's that he's come up with when he translated the Book of Abraham. Um, and but he's going to use that, but he never key phrases ended that up. he came up with. The, then I'm going to levy the same complaint that I levied last week against Brigham Young. It is apparent here that Joseph Smith cannot tell the difference between his own wild imaginations and true spirit-driven revelation. 
And if that's the case, why should any of us believe anything he says, even if a portion of it is true? Because he doesn't know which portion of it is true. Joseph Smith himself does not. Because he can't tell the difference between non-revelatory means and revelatory means. Right. So and the then, idea of course, that Joseph Smith was using an incorrect reference point to give a translation, it just further highlights how far off base he was um, from from the get-go. I mean, if you're going to say you're a prophet, seer, and revelator, and then somebody hands you a document and you tell them what it is, you can't call that a secular translation. You just you just can't you just can't do that. Especially when I, your quote secular translation is actually a revealed translation of of a papyra that obviously doesn't say what you said it did through revelation. Right. And wouldn't a true prophet, upon receiving a hoax, um, be able to use this power of discernment to say, hey, this isn't, you know, that's not what this is. And I think that, there's a bigger problem. I think there's a bigger problem here with the um, answer currently on FAIR's website uh, supporting Don Bradley's um, theory, and that is this all assumes that the grammar and alphabet of the Egyptian language is true. Right. And uh, for years, the apologists have been trying to distance themselves from this because there's no Egyptologist in the world, and I don't even think Guy or Rhodes support that document at all. They just said it's kind of ramblings and scribes, their attempt to try to figure out what Joseph was doing. And even though four pages of translation material isn't Joseph's handwriting, the rest of it is in scribes, and it's the old kind of scribes did it defense. But now, if the Kitterhook plates um, matches up with the alphabet and grammar, that means it's it's true, and I don't see how you can defend that. Well, I think Don is basing his conclusions on William Shriver's 2009, I, th I think, 2010, um, Present fair presentation where he claims to have a entirely new earth shattering paradigm shifting um, take on the KEP that brings it in new light. I cannot make head nor tails of what he's trying to say. If, if there's somebody out there and, and, and William, you can come on and ex explain this stuff, but I, he's, he apparently has gone dark these days. He's, he's off, he's off the radar, but. That they the fair guys were touting this as this is going to be the next big thing in in in, in Mormonism, and I think um, Don is and Don, you're welcome. I don't want to misrepresent you guys. I, I honest to God have the hardest time figuring out what the hell you guys are talking about. And you come on, and we'll let you give your side, uh, because I I really want to understand this this stuff better. So, so there you go. So, and um, what were you telling me that um, Daniel Peterson, who's sort of the the grand poobah of farms, was saying about Don Bradley Zilpha? When, when yesterday? Oh, that was that was me. I think. Oh, yeah. Was I don't that, think uh, it was me. I have a bad memory, uh, but yeah, let me find it here. So uh, yeah, I I challenged Bill, you know, and he he was telling me that the the. That the rest of the apologists have taken on um, Don because I I thought Don was kind of a, a a little bit of an outsider in the in the apologist community. Nice guy, I like Don. I've uh, well, I, had a beer and, with him in the past. While you're looking that up, can can I just tell you? Can or can I just relate how easy I think this would be to do what Don Bradley is saying? I mean, all, all you'd have to do what I think he's done, what I think I think he's just backdoored into this um, apologetic answer, which is. You look at the supposed, or you, you look at this translation, 
in the history of the church. Okay. Any of those words or any of those terms, any of those ideas that are the same as anything that's in the book of Abraham, you then go back and look at the character from which Joseph translated that verse in the Kirtland Egyptian papers. Okay. So you've got that little symbol now, that Egyptian hieroglyph, and you've got 12 different um, kinderhook plate uh, facsimiles that you can compare that to any one of them. And they're all just a bunch of squiggles and circles and crosses and lines. And if you can turn them any angle you want and smush them or expand them, you're going to be able to get it to fit, you know, one of those symbols on there. It's that easy. I mean, that's all, that's all he's done. Yeah. You know, in fact, I think I tried to match one of these up with the Anthon manuscript years ago and I sent it to Grant Palmer and he says, this is just a coincidence, you know. You write yeah. enough squiggles down, some are going to look like others. Yep. Um, hey, I found uh, the stuff on Peterson. Okay. Um, in addition to the fact that Don Bradley's thing, as you said, is now on Fair's explanation as as their current theory. It's the leading um, theory, yeah. Oh. Yes. Daniel Peterson said on the Mormon Discussions uh, website, in one of his posts, he said that, Don Bradley's presentation. It was a good, solid presentation. Congratulations to Don. And then in another one, he states, I suggest Don Bradley as the most current authority on the Kinderhook <laughs> episode. So he seems to be supporting him. I, I, I want to point something out here in, in terms of, uh, of apologetics. Um, if you talk to the apologists, they, they have a standard answer. We've dealt with that. Why are you bringing up that old canard? Why why are you bringing up things we've dealt with? Guys, this is how the apologists deal with things. So if you go to Peterson or those guys today and ask them about the Kinderhook plates, they will say, oh, we've already dealt with that. We've That's been explained. And they'll reference you off to Bradley's article. But but these things do not deal with the facts that, that we, we've laid out. Uh, granted, you can give the prophet, Joseph, a lot of leeway, but if you weren't giving him that prophetic leeway, most people would look at this and say, "Oh, this is a standard shut and uh, open and shut case." Like, if 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 this sort of thing happened to somebody in the community of Christ or the Strangites or one of those other things, I mean, the, the, they'd be going after him with sharpened knives. Well, and let's be clear. I mean, it has. There, there's other, you know, um, <laughs> Mormon traditions that have come up with their own plates their own you know explanation of witnesses and things like that and and have been attacked and have been discredited by the church there's nothing there's nothing here that gets them off the hook there's no good apologetic response that is in any way convincing so let let me let me reverse 180 degrees here Uh, i think i suggested the top that um a lot of critics suggest this is the smoking gun or the closest thing to it here's my problem with that there's no translation. If Joseph Smith had actually done a translation, then you have a crime fiat. But we're, we're really still working on third-hand information. We're work, working off of Clayton's claim. Now, I, I think Clayton's claim has a lot of validity, but I think it's cr- pretty clear if you read the history of Joseph Smith, he just said shit all the time. He just, he just, it was just coming off of him extemporaneously. So this is no more crazy. This doesn't even hit the top 10 crazy things Joseph Smith, off- Smith said off the cuff. So that's why, to me, it's not like the final nail in the coffin because the translation doesn't exist. If he had gone through 
so I, I think like the KEP um, or the Book of Abraham is much more damning to the reputation of Joseph than the Kinderhook. I, I agree, but I would add that the, the fact that it took the church so long to admit that it was a hoax and the fact that so many apostles and um, the church, you know, in its own official documents after the fact were holding it up as something genuine. I think that even even though Joseph Smith might not have stepped in it to the extent that a lot of people would say he stepped in it with something like the Book of Abraham, the church stepped in it by ratifying um, you know, the, the translation that he did give off the cuff. The church ratified that after the fact, and that made it worse. Yeah, I agree. Well, I would say that any time that Joseph had any opportunity to prove that he had some ability to translate ancient documents, he failed. The Book of Abraham facsimiles, the papyri, the Egyptian alphabet and grammar, the Anthem manuscript, the Greek Psalter, the Kinderhook plates, they all show that he, he couldn't translate any ancient writing. But he was good at trying. <laughs> A for effort, define, Joseph. Define good at. No, no, you're right. It's, it's interesting that the, any time we have any sort of physical evidence, and, and we do in some cases, it's a failure. It doesn't, it doesn't match what it says. The only time we can give him a pass is when we don't have the original to compare it to. Golden plate. Now, it doesn't, for, for somebody with a reasonable amount of skepticism, <laughs> you know, that you start seeing a pattern. And just so the believers out there who think we're, 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 we're not talking truthfully, I refer you to the Pearl of Great Price, page 41. It says a facsimile from the book of Abraham number three. Now, we, this shows, it says Abraham sitting on Pharaoh's throne. There is Egyptian written above their heads. We can read that Egyptian. And it does not say what Joseph Smith said it said it says. Clear and simple. There is no interpretation of the picture. It says things. So figure number four says, Prince of Pharaoh, King of Egypt, as written above the hand. The words written above the hand are a real legitimate language, just like English is. And it does not say, Prince of Pharaoh, King of Egypt. That is a flat-out, 100% mistranslation. There is no apologetic response to that they they it says something in a language joseph smith said it says something differently okay so we're we're, we're not just telling anti-mormon lies it's right there in the scriptures that that joseph smith did not was not able to translate it and once again to my point joseph smith apparently couldn't realize that he couldn't translate anything so why do we give him any credit on anything because he couldn't tell the difference even if he could translate things by miraculous power, he didn't know when he was able to do it. Thanks for coming tonight. But come on, um, <laughs> but come on John. Wasn't the scroll like 40 feet long? Oh, I mean, <laughs> doesn't, doesn't that refute uh, your point? We, yeah, we need to... Uh, we could, yeah, we really need to dig into the book. We need another eight-hour podcast-a-thon <laughs> like we did with uh, the Masons to talk about the length of the scroll. That'll be a real... <laughs> <laughs> we do need to do another book of Abraham one. Oh, but the, the, yeah, the, these these are the things that apologists spend their time trying not to look at. The, how many times you can roll a scroll over with the millimeters and the between the folds and stuff like that? Oh, that's awesome! Yeah. All right. Even, even though it doesn't say, I mean, it's it, it's it's a it's a ah, it's just it's just so preposterous. I'm I'm sorry. I 
I try to be more even. Oh, you mean they would say, "Oh, well, this this picture, John." Okay, so this picture was on another part. Of I, the I don't want to be. I don't want to be annoying. And in that part, it did say what Joseph said. It said we have the scroll. Okay, so so we ha- we have the scroll. The book of Abraham came come from. It has nothing to do with Abraham. It has nothing to do with anything Joseph Smith said it was. Um, so. And we can piece together and show evidence that this is the thing. It matches the KEP, the facsimile, you know, all, all that, all that stuff. So, so what John Gee, who is the one sort of trained Egyptologist in the church who refuses to talk to anybody says is that the scroll was actually 40 feet long and somehow inexplicably to this Egyptian burial scroll was attached the book of Abraham and the book of Joseph. Which would have no historical precedence or explanation. He just says the scroll is actually 40 feet long, and the thing that we've recovered is not the Book of Abraham. It's in the missing portion. Did I get that right, right. Jesse? Yeah, that, that's correct. But I was being sarcastic because it doesn't matter what the, how long the scroll was or what was on the scroll because the, the thing that they have in the facsimile itself, we can read the facsimile, not the papyri. We can read what the facsimile says. We can translate those characters That's and those characters point. exactly and those those characters aren't what Joseph Smith said that they were so we don't even if there were no papyri whatsoever the book of Abraham would still be dead I mean I don't it, know if it, it I would call go, go ahead I'm sorry no that's it I just don't I don't think the papyri, the papyri is nice I mean it it definitely gives more weight um, to the critics argument it, it, it certainly adds to it but your last point about the translation of the character the specific characters in the facsimiles um it's the papyrus the papyri isn't isn't necessary at all i mean it's, it's cut and dry and it, it's only it, it only seems mysterious because we're talking about ancient languages if somebody from the future came and pointed you to somebody's name that said mary and said that says you know something about um, the Washington DC monument or whatever, you'd be like, y- you're smoking dope. You're up in the night. There's no way you can make that connection. And that's exactly what he did. The, 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 the people's names are right there above. Uh, uh, it's just, uh, I, I don't like calling what Joseph Smith did a fraud because there's so many people who believe in this sort of communication with the netherworld and different things. And they legitimately believe that's that stuff, but it's clear to look at it. It's not a, a, a valid way of arriving at historical knowledge. It doesn't work. Anytime we can, we can compare Joseph Smith to the facts, he gets them wrong. Whenever we have, every single time that we have any evidence, it's wrong. I don't, I don't know what else to say. <laughs> yeah, I think the, um, the only way the church could come unscathed from the whole Kinderhold plates thing is that if they were actually real ancient records, but the church already admitted that they, they're a hoax, so I, I don't think they can es- really escape from this. If Joseph Smith had just used some qualifying language, he, he would have gotten out of this no problem. But it was his own certainty and his own bombastic nature that caused this kind of a problem. I mean, if he just said, you know, I'm not 100% sure, but that looks like this Egyptian, blah, 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 blah. But well, then again, if he said that, he wouldn't have been a prophet. I, I agree. And, and, and he, even if he did say that, is that what William Clayton and Parley P. Pratt would have written down? 
they probably would have heard the part that they wanted to hear. I mean, I'm not saying that Joseph Smith didn't, because it sounds like something Joseph would say. It could but. be, and that, that's one of the reasons I say it's not the smoking gun, because they, they could have they could have misheard. But, you know, why didn't Joseph yeah. say, hey, let me go back in the back and get my breastplates with the Urim and Thummim in them so I can take a look at this through these prophetic th- things? You know, Joseph didn't even stay consistent to his own story. Why didn't he say, let me go get my... Uh, my um, rock I got out of Sally's well so I can put it in my hat and 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 see what's going on you know what wh- how is it that he just looks at it now and uh, I don't know I don't I mean if he was really a prophet and he really translated all this stuff in Egyptian or reformed Egyptian he would have said either these these were a hoax or he didn't know what they mean but he didn't he tried to translate them and he was many years later called on yep so the hoax worked took a long time yes it did, <laughs> it did work yeah they didn't get the big bang they wanted to but uh, it, it doesn't help joseph that's for sure no nope, got a little ripple all right any um anything we've missed on on the kinderhook controversy I think we beat this horse today. And Bill you've got a lot of great stuff you've written up that goes into more detail than we were able to um um cover if people want to go over to mormonthink.com and 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 look look up the kinderhook they can see that stuff and by all means please um, go to lds.org and research and find the um, enzyme article or head out to fair um, and look at what they have to say about it also all right any last thoughts well in closing i'd like to say that i think this definitely gives the apologists a black eye for 30 years, they said that those words in the history of the church are just William Clayton's, that Joseph did not attempt to translate the Kinderhook plates. But now in 2011, they did a 180, and right on Fair's website, they say that Joseph did attempt to translate the Kinderhook plates, and those are his words in the history of the church. But he tried a secular translation. But if they could just change like that after being so adamant for 30 years, you just wonder, what are they going to change next? <laughs> All right. And I'd like to thank modern science for straightening out religious confusion once again. <laughs> All right. Well, as always, the discussion will continue over at uh, mormonexpression.com. This episode was um, produced, directed, and edited by Rich Rasmussen. Um, our music is by The Selden Plan. Um this is a production of the Whitefields Educational Foundation, and um, we invite you, to, if you believe in what we're doing, to uh, consider a donation or a subscription today. Uh, what what do we need to announce, Zilpha? Is there anything on the agenda? Um, no, I think the camp the, the camping uh, the camping roster is pretty is, dang full. The camping trip is full. Sorry if you missed out on that one. We can catch you next year. But we have some other things in the works that we should be announcing shortly. Oh, the essay contest essays are due by June first. Um, submit a less than ten minute audio version um, to mail at mormonexpression dot com, and um, the winner is a hundred bucks. There's two winners: People's Choice and Mormon Expression Choice. Yeah, another reason to uh, make a donation today. Help pay for the <laughs> for your prize. All right. Good night, everybody. Good night. Good night. Good night.
golden plate. Now, 